They shift him from right to left. Play action to that side. Rolling right looking. Fires in the end zone. Got a man. Oh, touchdown. That's a tight end from 15 yards out. Welcome to the Bowl Season Stories Podcast, Season 3, Episode 9. I'm Nick Carparelli, the Executive Director of Bowl Season, and today we are joined by NBC sportscaster Mike Tirico. If you missed any of our previous episodes, you can catch them on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, or anywhere else you listen to your podcast. And if you enjoyed today's show, we'd appreciate you to like, subscribe, and drop a five-star rating. And as always, you can follow all the Bowl Season news on our website, bowlseason.com, and on social media at Bowl Season. Today's show is brought to you by Sport Radar, reimagining immersive experiences for sports fans and betters. Our first guest joined ESPN as a Sports Center anchor in 1991 and spent the next 25 years there hosting coverage of virtually every major sporting event. The Syracuse alum is currently the voice of NBC Sports' biggest events, handling play-by-play for Sunday Night Football and serving as the primetime host for NBC's coverage of the Olympics. Please welcome to the show, Mike Tarico. Mike, thanks for joining us. Nick, it is great to see you. It's uh, It's been a long time uh, that we've gotten to know each other over the years. It's good to see you in, in this role and all the great things you're doing for college football and the bowl season as well. So pleasure to be on with you. Well, it's, it's been my privilege to get to know you and uh, really appreciate you spending a few minutes with us. You know, you've been referred to as the jack of all trades and master of each in the sports broadcasting <laughs> world. You've called virtually every major sporting event. I'm wondering if you can even list them all, but it, it's, it's the Daytona 500 to the masters, the world cup in South Africa, the triple crown in horse racing, the Olympics, NFL, NBA, NHL, and of course, college football and basketball. You're so good at all of them, Mike. Thank you. Tell me which events have been some of your favorite to call over the years. Wow. There are, there are so many, Nick, uh, as you go through them, uh, you know, it's, I'm getting old, so it's been a, a long time doing this, and a lot of events piled up. Uh, I always loved the Final Four, being a part of that, although we never covered it, not being with CBS. I guess that's the one event that I've never had the chance to do that uh, that I love so much. But, uh, man, I, I think about the being a part of Super Bowls and the World Cup and the British Open. If you had to pin me down to one, there's a, a great emotional tie for me with golf and what's now known as the open, what a lot of folks here refer to and understand as the British open. That was my first really big network job in 97. I was working at ESPN for six years, which was a big job and still is, but the first one at ABC and at that time, network TV still had a little bit of a cachet compared to cable TV. And I was uh, asked to be the person in charge of our ABC sports golf coverage on the air in the 18th tower with Curtis strange and started that 97 and, it's been, you know, the, the better part of three decades of being there at the Open. It's the birthplace of golf in Scotland when we play at St. Andrews. But throughout the UK, wherever you are, Scotland, England, Northern Ireland, you really feel the game. And uh, my love for golf and because of that platform, my ability to go on to different things, I think really centers around that. So if there's one that's deep in my soul, in addition to college athletics, it, it would be the British Open. But the college athletics stays close to me because of uh, where it really started, you know, at Syracuse, covering sports, covering Syracuse football and basketball, and the chance to stay involved with both Syracuse and college athletics in general on a somewhat regular basis is a big thrill for me. Well, no matter how big the event, Mike, you can't always uh, predict the outcome or how dramatic it might be. 
but you have to be ready for it. I'm curious, what goes through your head as a broadcaster before a big moment, before the game-winning drive, or right before that moment of victory? What what, what do you think about? It's a, it's a great question, Nick. I don't think you necessarily think differently than you do all game because you've got to be ready at any moment for the greatest play you've ever seen or the best moment of the season could happen, the catch of the year. Think of uh, Odell Beckham Jr.'s catch in 20, I guess it was 2012 or 2013 on Sunday Night Football. That happens in the third quarter. You don't know that play is going to happen. It could have been a handoff for four yards. Instead, it turns into an iconic play. So with every play, you have to have a certain level of readiness. I think when you get to the end of the game and you know that there's going to be a deciding drive or a key moment in the game, you probably lean towards simplicity a little bit more and lean towards focus on the play. So you're watching everything to see what happens. And then somewhere in the back of your mind, you're probably leaning on your preparation from during the week. And, okay, what does this really mean? How do we frame it? I think at the end of the day, what our job is to document the event, inform, and entertain the audience, kind of in that order. And you have to call on each one at different times. And when you're doing that at the end of a game, you're documenting the event. So you want to make sure that you – put it in the proper context and perspective. How big a win is it? How big a win would it be? What changes if this happens? So I think those are the things that you're trying to process all week in your preparation. And hopefully those come to the front of your mind when you get to that moment. But the focus has to be right on the field or the court for that final moment to decide, okay, how do we best express what just happened in front of us? Do you have one call that sticks out to you as the most memorable in your career? You know, not, not really. There have been so many cool moments that happen in front of you. You know, the, the one moment I would say that probably jumped up and has had a viral existence for a long time before viral was a, a word we associate with video and not health issues. I, I would say it, it's the block punt in New Orleans when they reopened the Superdome in 2006. So there's a end of a first drive in the first quarter of a game where they're reopening the Superdome. And famously, Steve Gleason recovers a block punt. And it's the first game back after Hurricane Katrina. And that's as loud a stadium as I've ever experienced in my life. And the emotions were just pouring out from everywhere. Uh, so that, that one was one that just kind of sticks out that you hear it over and over. And uh, when it happened, I, I said, touchdown, New Orleans. And I had that in the back of my mind for the whole week because it wasn't about the Saints. That game was about New Orleans and the city being open again. So those, those, that's one that sticks out. There are a couple others along the way that were a lot of fun as well. Um, Jean Vandeveld, the British Open, a uh, bunch of big plays at the end of games. But that, that's one that really sticks with me is uh, probably one that when I hear back is, okay, we, we kind of said what needed to be said at that point. This is obviously a college football podcast, so yeah. let me ask you specifically, what was going through your head before Jameis Winston and the Seminoles drove 80 yards down the field to win the 2014 BCS National Championship? Yeah, wow. Uh, you think about the moments there, right, where it's all on the line and legacies for players. That's a different setting, right? And I had the chance to be involved in some of the um, then BCS and at the NCFP playoff games in addition to calling bowl games, uh, man, you're thinking how everything changes for all these guys as you go through with a drive like that. And Jameis 
you know, James had a poise about him that was different. And I think you still even see it, even though he's not a starter in the NFL, you see it from him. And, um, and, and he was able to tease that moment, which I think we take for granted with college kids. They're 19 and 20, but they're exposed to so much now that these moments aren't too big for them. And, and he, he proved that there. I'm, I'm so glad you brought up um, some bowl games because I know it's what you do for a living, but some of my favorite events that I got to cover was during the height of the college football bowl experience. Uh, when, when there was focus on let's get to, if not a new year's day bowl, let's get to one of the really good bowls or even the bowl opportunity for teams for the first time. Uh, man, some of those moments and rewards uh, and games stick out to me. We, we did a holiday bowl uh, a couple of, couple of years. We did a Texas, Oklahoma holiday bowl that Chris Sims and I still talk about to this day. Uh, how exciting it was, right? So um, those those experiences in the postseason, I think you find when players get older and they get back with their team and they reminisce, they talk about the trip to San Diego for that bowl at that time or the trips to other places for other bowl games. And, uh, you know, we put so much focus, and rightfully so, on the national championship and uh, getting to call a bunch of those on radio was so cool. But, uh, man, the the postseason college football experience still has a, a cool resonance about it. it. It's almost like the, did you get the check mark from your teacher that you passed the test? You made it to the postseason. I, I still love that that's a part of what we, what we talk about, what teams aspire to on an annual basis in this sport. Well, you've, you've obviously covered a lot of college football games in your career. You mentioned BCS and Notre Dame football, Thursday night college football, Syracuse in your younger days, still a, you know, few, few Syracuse games here and there as your career went yeah. on as uh, when you were at ESPN, what do you think of the growth and popularity of college football in general? And and you started talking about bowl season. What do you how, what do you think bowl season has done to aid in that growth? That three week period in December, where really the entire sports world is is focused on college football. Yeah, you know, I mean, I'll be really candid with you, Nick. Here, the the growth of college football is the best and worst thing that's happened to the sport all at the same time. It's like uh, it's like the internet. It's like social media. I think would be a better one. It's it's an invaluable tool. However, it doesn't come as a perfectly wrapped Christmas gift, right? There are, there are parts of it that you've got to manage and deal with. And that's some of the struggles I think we all have with it. Let, let me, let me lean on the positive of the postseason because, you know, you're, we're at a hundred plus teams, obviously in the FBS level, and there's such a focus on the playoff and there will be a continued focus as that expands. But what if you have a great, a really good season and you're eight and four, you're nine and three, and that's a good season, especially when you think of now the depth of these conferences. I mean, you're going to have 15, 18, 20 teams in a conference to have a reward. Do we all want to go home on November 20th when the season is over and say, that's it, we're done? No, not at all. Uh, so I think it's a great reward for a lot of folks. And I think that's something that is hugely important for teams uh, as you go through the season in college football. So to keep working, to try to get to a bowl game, that's something that really I think matters to these, not just student athletes, but the alumni, the coaches, the parents of the players, that opportunity to close the season with some success. So I love what you guys are doing with the strengthening of bowl season and an understanding that those December games really matter. Um, boy, the TV ratings should show it, right? <laughs> you, you put on the sure. TV – in uh, December 15th, 18th, 20th, and 
man, what do people want to watch on Saturday? Give me more college football. That shows me the unsatisfied appetite for the sport that our country has that I think we all appreciate when we see these games in these different cities. Well, we appreciate those words, Mike. I mean, that's how we feel. You know, I, I don't know why some people feel that CFP and bowl season competes with one another in a way. And, and, that, and that couldn't be further from the truth. It's complimentary. Like we, we look at the CFP and bowl season as, as college football's postseason, right? There, there's only so many programs that can aspire to be in that 12 team playoff. And that's not enough. Uh, experience is not enough opportunities for all of college football. Like, I mean, you and I love Syracuse. Are, are we going to be in the playoff very often? Probably not. But those student athletes deserve something to strive for, something that they can achieve, and then to be rewarded for it at the end of the season to go to some great destination that they've probably never been to before in their life. Nick, it's a great point. And I think here's where my concerns for college football are. On the, uh, There are a lot, right? There are a lot of great things. There are a lot of concerns. My biggest one is, this is not pro football and we keep equating it to pro football, pro football. We have 14 teams now used to be 12. We go play a playoff. That's great. Well, 16 go home. That's it. In college football. If you say, okay, 12 teams make the playoff 115 or so 110 or so go home. And what does that mean? That means you're eliminated from the playoff in October, mid October. What does that do to the experience of Saturdays on campus? Part of the joy of college football is homecoming weekend, conference rivalries. Um, you know, Syracuse can be playing Pittsburgh or Boston College, longtime rivals. Pittsburgh can be playing West Virginia. And it may not mean a bowl game, but there's a century of legacy. We grew up on this rivalry. Uh, state heroes were made in this rivalry over the years. It endures in a different level than the NFL. And I think trying to homogenize football at the professional and collegiate level to make them equals has been part of this, you know, media debate cycle and all of that and the money of it too, let's be honest, but it's so valuable to continue on your season. Let's take the team that finishes 14th in the poll and loses three games and they go nine and three. It's a hell of a year, right? You've, you've won three quarters of your games in most athletic endeavors that should be rewarded. So this Especially ability if you're a program that doesn't typically win nine games. Maybe you're exactly. a seven, six, seven, eight win program, and all of a sudden you have you have a nine win season. Why, why, why not? Look, we saw Duke lose by a point to Notre Dame, beat Clemson, aspirational season. What if Duke plays in the Orange Bowl? Right? What if you get hot at the end of the year? What what if you what if you that, that's an experience of a lifetime, right? For those players. And that's where we've lost it. The NIL conversation, the guys going pro, whether it's college or football or basketball so much of the volume of conversation is on the couple of percent of the student athletes i i know jay billis is a guy who i admire and respect he gets upset when we use the term student athletes so do others i just love the fact that that the kids go to school and that this is part of their life part of their experience is their great athletic ability has given them an opportunity to get an amazing academic opportunity doesn't mean they shouldn't get rewarded and compensated in, in the public space with the NIL. I think that's a great addition and change to it. But, man, let's, let's enjoy the college experience as well. And I know I'm in my mid-50s, and every single second I spend on a college campus, and I've stayed very involved in the, on the board at Syracuse. You're on some boards up there. Any second you spend on a college campus is mentally enriching. 
you learn, you grow, you become smarter being around smart people. So why look at that and say that's a negative? That's a positive. Just like the postseason where you can take a kid from Tennessee who can go play a bowl game during the holiday season in Arizona, California, somewhere where he maybe has not been before, another part of the country. That will be enriching because that person's going to know for the next 25 years, hey, in Arizona, it's like this, or this part of the, in Boise, it's like this, right? That's valuable to the individuals. So instead of worrying about the bottom line and worrying about we have to crown a champion, we can still do that. At the same time, there's a smart way to continue to enjoy the opportunities that sports give us. This is entertainment, no doubt about it, but it's also education. And most of the guys who you watch on Saturdays, most of them are not only going to school, but getting a degree. So if this continues the part of their education, then let's keep the bowl system healthy and alive and doing great things in communities where these bowl games are played. Um, you can be a, a naysayer and, and poo-poo their importance. I can understand a couple of players who have NFL aspirations and it might be better for them to protect their interest, but that's not a hundred guys. It's a couple of guys. So instead of the focus on that, let's focus on the positives. And, you know, I'm a friend of yours, but I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm not here reading a script you sent me. This is an honest feeling from my soul of why I think the bowl experience is, uh, is something super valuable to the athletes of today, the student athletes of today, and to the universities as a whole. So I, I, hope, I hope that all the work together, the power of these bowl games, continues to keep this a strong part of what college football is all about. Well, that's what we're trying to do, Mike. You, you, you make a lot of sense, as you always do. <laughs> let's uh, let's talk about your 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 memories of bowl games, either attending or calling them. Put put the BCS and the CFP games aside. Okay. Are there any, any bowl games that stand out in your mind that are particularly memorable to you? Well, I, I'll give you a funny one. Uh, I am in now in the state of Michigan. My wife is from here, and in 1985, I was a college sophomore, and Syracuse went to the Cherry Bowl, which doesn't exist anymore, right? But it was my chance to go out to Pontiac, Michigan. There was a parade. It was freezing cold. Syracuse played Maryland. What a great experience. And then 1987, I was working uh, in local TV. It was the 87 season. It was 1988, New Year's Day, and Syracuse played Auburn. It was a 16-16 tie. And, you know, rest his soul, the late Pat Dye did many wonderful things in college football and had a Hall of Fame coaching career. But I was always disappointed that he sent the field goal unit out 16 to 13 in the Superdome. Like, I remember standing on the sidelines, looking down at Dick McPherson, Hall of Famer coach, looking at Coach Mack, and he's white shirt, orange blue striped tie, dark blue jacket, his hands on his hips looking over like, are you kidding me? You're going to go for a tie in a bowl game? Because Syracuse was going for a 12-0 season, and they ended up 11-0-1. Uh, holiday bowls I talked about. Did a few of those with Kirk Herbstreet, had a great time. Kirk and I were at the Alamo Bowl, Michigan playing Nebraska, and Michigan almost had a Stanford-Cal-type play at the end of the game to win the Alamo Bowl. And every December 28th or 9th, that kind of rolls around on social media, and uh, I relive that memory too. Uh, worked a bunch of uh, Outback Bowls in Tampa with those folks who were so supportive of the whole idea of starting the new year down there with a a terrific bowl game and the big 10 against the sec. And in one of those games, South Carolina, Michigan, there was an incorrect uh, measurement 
Michigan kept the ball. And on the very next play, Jadevian Clowney said enough of this. A famous highlight of the future number one pick, knocked the Michigan guy over, knocked him down, took the ball with one hand and kind of brought it in. Uh, you bring that, up that, so that, many. Talk about viral, Mike. That play would have never happened yeah. had the officials measured correctly. That's, that's exactly that's exactly right. Every time I see that official, I'm like, uh, I shouldn't say this again. But uh, that, going to the Rose Bowl, uh, John Gruden was my TV partner for many years. John loved college football. He used to, he'd never come down to the – I'll tell you a quick story, Nick. John never came down to the field before the game. He stayed in the booth. And I told him, John, you've got to come down to the Rose Bowl. you got to come down to the field because – that's the greatest surface you've ever seen in college football. Every year it's pristine. It's perfect. And he walked down. Still to this, this day, when we connect, we talk about, remember the grass, the Rose Bowl, just looked like the most perfect setting for football, right? So, so like all these things, none of them are college football playoff or BCS moments, right? But I, I just, without even thinking long, just rattled off a half dozen. I can go on and on and on. Um, I, I love, I love the bowl season because it's hope and, Maybe that hope is not just the final line on your season, which is what it was. It's a little bit of the foundation for what's coming, right? Tell me I'm going to get those extra practices with my young players. And tell me we're going to see some young guys who are going to play for the first time in a bowl game. And, man, I'm excited for the future. I'm excited for their future. Um, I, I think there are so many of those things that that happen every year. And, I just went from, you know, 85 to, you know, the, the 20 teens, 25, 30 years of bowl memories, just like that. And I'm excited to see it continue to grow. I, I really am. And those are the things that uh, hopefully will stay with those players, their parents, and uh, the alums of the schools for a long time. A couple more questions, Mike. I want to go back to your sure. career and in, in, in what you do now. Uh, in working all those great events that we talked about, it's given you the opportunity to work with a long list of great broadcast partners. Tell us some of the ones you've enjoyed working with the most. And, and did you have any mentors or role models uh, in the business along the way? No, my, my phone's here. And uh, if you scroll through that phone, there's a, there's a text maybe every week or so with Kirk Herbstreet. I don't think we've done anything together on the air in 10 years. Uh, you know, we, we stay in touch. We've become friends. I mentioned coach Gruden, uh, we've stayed friends over the years. We'll uh, we'll we'll laugh over some of some of those some of those days. Todd Blackledge, uh, we did some Thursday night football back in the day. Gary Danielson, I had a chance to do a couple of Thursday night games with. Uh, Doctor Jerry Punch was our sideline reporter for for many years on Thursday nights. Um, yeah, Thursday night football was uh, was really exciting when we got started with it because some of the conferences like the ACC jumped in and. You know, Virginia Tech's space as a national TV draw really grew from their Thursday night and her Sandman and all, all that stuff along the way. So a lot of those people were were really fun to be with. I, I'm thinking of um, the times that I worked at ABC with Tim Brandt and Terry Bowden and um, to get to to get to know Terry and get even closer to knowing Bobby, uh, who is such a just a titan in college football. Uh, for so many years and what he built at Florida State. Obviously, Lee Corso, every time I see him on TV, uh, I smile. And who who doesn't, right? Um, Coach's toughness, his perseverance, his energy, his love for the game. Um, there were a lot of uh, Thursday nights. We did a couple of years, three years with Kirk and Lee together. We fly in on Wednesday and escape on Thursday night to try to get to our weekend games. We were covering games on Thursdays and Saturdays and 
gosh, did we have fun. But Coach Corso, Nick, he he sat us down for so many life lessons along the way of, uh, hey, you know, you guys, just going to tell you when you get older, this and that. And, uh, man, the, the the job has brought me so many opportunities to sit with and next to great people. And I, I can't talk about that without mentioning Doug Flutie, you know, a guy who is college football, right? Um, you know, that, that Flutie play, even you – know, let's start thinking now – you know, we have people who are approaching 40 years old who weren't alive for the Doug Flutie you know, miracle uh, down in Miami against the Canes. And uh, to be with Doug covering Notre Dame football uh, for about four or five years at NBC uh, and to be with him on the anniversary of that play and relive it and listen to him tell the stories about Gerard Phelan and what happened at the end of the play and all that. Uh, man, you, you, you stop. It's something you don't think about all the time, but how blessed – uh, this job has made us not just for what's come in our lives, but the people we've been able to not just meet, but uh, get to call friends and get to travel around the country and you know, sit in the office of a college football coach with Doug Flutie. Right. And they want to talk about Flutie. They want to talk about, I remember I watched this. I saw this. Hey, Doug, I've got a little quarterback who runs around. I want you to meet him, a walk on guy. And those are the things that uh, that make our life so much fun and we give up weekends to do this job we travel around the country but oh my gosh we're so lucky to do it and uh those are some of the people and places that come to mind when you ask that question mike i want to talk a little bit about your preparation for these events you know no matter what you do if you're an athlete if you're a broadcaster if you're a doctor you know people kind of take for granted the preparation they just see the results and they expect the results to be excellent uh, I was sitting next to you. You and I are on a, a board of advisors for the Falk Sports Management School of Syracuse. We were sitting next to each other last year. I asked you about this, and you were it was pretty cool. You pulled up, uh, uh, opened up your computer, pulled up your call sheet to show me how it was laid out and all the information that you were researching and organizing so you could have it at your fingertips when you were calling the game that weekend. Tell our listeners all that's involved in preparing to call a football game. Yeah, it's it's fun. Um, it's challenging at times. I'll tell you, Nick, it's gotten harder because of doing yeah, it, it. It's probably about 50 plus hours a week for a game. Uh, you know, it, it, it's it, it is all consuming because if you think, OK, so I happen to be doing as we're talking I'm getting ready for a Buffalo Bills, New York Giants game. So they've each played five games already. So you've got that reservoir of information. You'll have the press releases that the team send out. You'll have all the analytics that our group works with Pro Football Focus, which is Chris Collinsworth's company. And there's a full batch of data. If I want to know what's the pressure rate on Josh Allen against the Blitz on third and six or more, there's somebody who can get me that answer right away. Uh, then there's all the stories you want to tell about the players, especially on Sunday night football, because it's a primetime game. We, we lean a little more into the telling of the stories of the individuals than just the XO. So we try to find the right balance of the best stories to share with America every Sunday night. So it's all of those things. And what you have to do is figure out what's important. So uh, it's data absorption, absorption, it's data collection, and then it's making sure that you've got what matters. And when you need something, you know where it is. So a lot of the week is distilling, organizing, putting in a format that I can find it during the broadcast, 
And then I like to say that we have a three and a half hour open book test in front of America, 20 million people grading us. And you better be right, because at any point, 47, 48 active players times two teams, GMs, coaches, coordinators, owners, one of 120 people could become the story of the night or a story that you're going to talk about a little bit. And what you want to have is the ability to do that story properly. So for us, we work independently from, let's take Sunday night football. We work independently Monday through Thursday. <clears throat> Friday, we travel to the site of the game and meet with the home team. Uh, Friday night, we get our group together for some dinner, some fun. Uh, that's where I think the bond of a on-air team is really formed. Saturday, we meet with the road team. We put all of our stuff together. We watch tape together. We kind of take everything from the week and almost throw it on a table and we kind of sort out what we're going to do uh, for Sunday in the broadcast. And then you get on the plane Monday morning. I go back and watch the game that we've just done and you repeat the cycle uh, for 21 straight weeks for seven straight days. So Bill Belichick likes to say no days off and we, we adhere to that. And then the next day off in football season is January 22nd or 23rd after our last game. So you know what you sign up for, but uh, it enriches you every week because it's a new challenge with new stories. And um, like every football team, we're still always in search of the perfect game. So we, we keep trying to find it. Well, Mike, thanks so much for joining us. You know, all these big events, when, when athletes play, play in these big events or if they were to win the event, they, they know it's a big deal if Mike Tirico is calling the event oh, nice. or if, if Mike Tirico interviews them after the event. Imagine how cool I feel right now, <laughs> Mike Tirico. So oh, I appreciate you coming on the show, Mike. You're 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 a great friend. You're obviously great at what you do, and you're an even better guy. So really appreciate your time, well, Nick. Nick, thank you. Thanks for uh, our, our Syracuse connection is is great. It's one of the special things about college athletics and colleges in general. The special connections you make with people who you otherwise wouldn't. I appreciate that, and I really do sincerely mean I appreciate what your group is doing uh, for the, for the bowl season and bowl games to try to keep them healthy and alive and um, see the value in them. And uh, without this collective effort of a lot of good people around the country, it wouldn't have the voice it does. And they've got a heck of a leader to do that in you. So keep up this good fight. And uh, I look forward to sharing a meal with you and seeing you down the road. Thanks, Mike. Take care. You too, Nick. Thanks so much. Well, that'll do it for this week's podcast. Today's guests were brought to you by Tappet. Understand how going cashless builds loyalty, engages fans, and boosts your bottom line. And TaxAct, the official tax filing software of bowl season. Go to taxact.com to get started today. If you missed any of our past episodes, you can catch them on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, or anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. And if you enjoyed today's show, we'd appreciate you to like, subscribe, and drop a five-star rating. And as always, you can follow all the bowl season news on our website, bowlseason.com, and on social media at Bowl Season. Thanks for listening. <laughs>